The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. This week we come to you almost live from the headquarters of BAFTA in London's Piccadilly. Why? Because it's home to the first ever Ad Week Europe conference. In our bumper advertising section, you heard it here first. It's the imminent death of the 30-second advert. Plus, why aren't there more women in the magazine industry? And there's a small matter of press regulation. What's been agreed? How did we get here? And what happens next? This is Media Talk from The Guardian. So, the great and the good of the advertising industry have descended on BAFTA in Piccadilly. You can probably hear them having their coffee and croissant in the background. And later we'll be bringing you interviews with some of the biggest ad creatives and leaders that have been here this week. But before all that, the future shape of press regulation in the UK was hammered out this week by Nick Clegg and Oliver Letwin in Ed Miliband's office in the early hours of Monday morning. Let's hear from Lord Putnam, who greased the parliamentary wheels by introducing a short-lived Leveson clause into the defamation bill. We'll also hear from Economist Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. Putnam believes the new regulatory system ticks most of the boxes, but The Economist editor has some serious concerns about what the politicians cooked up. Let's hear first from the Labour peer, and then John Micklethwaite. I think the actual result we've got sort of ticks most of the boxes that uh, I hoped would get ticked. I'm not sure I like the way we arrived at it. I don't like closed-door conferences. I don't like the idea of the Royal Charter. Uh, because it seems to be fundamentally undemocratic. I was involved for two years of my life chairing the committee that created Ofcom and I just know the process we went through. It's extremely rigorous and and time-consuming. It then went through both houses of parliament and by the time it emerged I think the Ofcom regulations turned out to be extremely robust and works. And uh, I can't, for my own, my own belief is, that press regulation is entitled to, and probably requires, when you look at the cro- right across the internet, is entitled to that amount of time, that amount of consideration, and that amount of thought. And the fact it was such a sort of last-minute deal done in the early hours of the morning uh, was partly a result of your, uh, the clause you inserted into the defamation bill. So, um, I mean, you, you sort of speeded the whole process up. Yeah, I mean, that was the intention. And one of the ironies, of course, is exactly the same phrase that was used by David Cameron in describing his decision to withdraw from the talks last Thursday, where he said he was trying to break the logjam. That's precisely what we were trying to do in the backbenches of the House of Lords, was break what we saw as a very real logjam. And the common interpretation seems to be that the newspaper owners were outmaneuvered by hacked off, which represents the victims of phone hacking. Do you see that? I think newspaper owners outmaneuvered themselves. I sincerely do. I think that they overestimated their clout. I think they believed they could, as it were, shout their way out of this. I think this rather self-righteous cloak of freedom of expression that they wrapped themselves in, they thought would be enough. And I think they very, very badly underestimate, and continue to underestimate, the sense of unfairness and lack of justice that is seen by the public at large in terms of the activities of the newspapers, certainly during and after, and, and obviously well before the Millie Dowler incident. Is it statutory regulation or not? I think that to pretend this isn't statute, is ridiculous. Of course this is statute. It is exactly what it said it was. It's an underpinning and it's an underpinning to try and ensure compliance. That's all. At The Economist we've always been a supporter of the idea of anything that could be done to clean up Britain's libel laws and there is that carrot still there but there's now appears to become ever more messy, ever more difficult to understand and the idea of exemplary damages for people who are outside the system, I find very difficult. There seems to be some sort of debate whether it's, uh, it's statutory legislation or not, but you, you appear to have come down that I, it definitely I, I, is. I think in the end, the difficulty from a journalist's point of view is that we all have to be very honest about this, and you come down to a choice. And there is a choice between looking after one fundamental right, which is the right of people to some degree of privacy, 
and the other is the freedom of the press. And if you favour a system of journalists policing journalists, I think you have to be honest and admit that that is going to probably end up with more abusive behaviour by journalists. If, on the other hand, you decide that the freedom of the press in the end is the most important thing, then you have to accept that that comes with that. And I think in the end, confronted by that, I would still say that the freedom of the press is the bigger liberal issue. And I'm aware of the conflict of interest we have in putting that across, but I think it comes straight from the core of what a liberal society is. John Micklethwaite there. Earlier, I was joined by Stig Abel, the former director of the Press Complaints Commission, and Dan Saber, the Guardian's head of national news. Well, it kind of sums up the state of uh, the media, really. You know, there's not, not one party has an overall majority and there's not one sort of faction within the press that can get its own way. And, look, and there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, where there was, a, you know, a great game, a simple game, and there was a sort of alliance of News International and Associated Newspapers, and uh, one or two other publishers quite happily went along with those two. And they sort of ran a fix, if you like, and they had a way of running the PCC, like a cosy club. I'd better be careful. The wonderful Stig Abel is here, but it's very much my view. Um, people like Les Hinton and, you know, Paul Day, would do deals and they would do deals with ministers too and in effect uh, they ran a very a very neat system ran from sort of the moment that Tony Blair decided he wasn't going to get into media reform in the 1990s for sort of uh, well over 20 years and I think what, what's happened now is that system's partly broken down not completely broken down hence the mess but you know those guys you know I think what Paul Dacre still wants to do is do a deal with David Cameron you know man to man let's just you know, not have a law underpinning a royal chartered body. Let's let's not do that. Let's talk privately. Let's get it all sorted out. You know, uh, uh, let's have a sort of a you know a raucous press, and you know, let's be sort of mates on the side when it suits us. Uh, um, Dacre's a man who went, I think, uh, you know, on daily walks with Gordon Brown when he was prime minister. So that's the kind of environment and context that used to operate, and it just isn't quite work now. And that's why we're in the mess that we're in. Stig, what is it about what's been proposed uh, that's, that's dividing the press and, and how are they divided? Well, the press has been divided for years and, and whatever the, the, the problems with the PCC, is, as uh, Dan has been pointing out, if you look back on it now, there's a certain simplicity to it. Most, virtually everyone was in it. Uh, it dealt with complaints pretty well. It dealt with pre-publication concerns pretty well. And it sort of puttered along. What it didn't do was get into uh, big standards issues and able to change standards sufficiently in papers like the News of the World and others to stop the big problems occurring. But even then, even while the PCC was functioning, the industry was never divide, never united at all. And we always talk about the newspaper industry as if it's, uh, one always talks about it as if it's this great unified mass, but it never has been. And since the arrival of the internet, it's threatened to go further and further. So the industry can't agree with itself, what they can agree to, and this is the area where I think there may be unity starting to develop, is the sense that what the politicians uh, agreed upon was a tawdry compromise. And the notion of 2AM Ed Miliband's office, four members have hacked off, I think has tipped the balance slightly in a lot of newspapers' minds where they were still squabbling amongst themselves and they all had guilty consciences and they felt they couldn't really argue uh, for what they wanted to see. But they get a sense now that actually the politicians have made such a mess that there is no real alternative on the table. And I think in the end, we'll probably get most people signing up to a more sensible, more robust uh, regulator. So that's the optimistic side of things. But equally, I could well imagine a scenario where a re big regional news publisher in the next couple of weeks says, you know what, there's no downside to me not being part of this club, I'm not going to be part of it. We're seeing it, two magazines already, The New Statesman and The Spectator, Private Eye or, uh, and Never Been in the PCC, not going to join this. It only takes one more serious publisher 
to say this is not for me. And I think we're back almost at square one. Dan, what is the issue that the newspaper groups have got with it? Is it, is it the purely this sort of dab of statutory that's, that's backing up the Royal no, Charter? No, the, the trouble is everyone's, there are so many different players with so many different perspectives. Sticks talked about the disunity of the national press and in a spirited way that has been going on for a long time. But uh, he also touched on the point, you know, the regional press. The regional press don't want this expensive arbitral disputes resolution quasi-judicial arm that might sort out some privacy complaints because it's not you know, privacy and libel ain't their sort of problem. Uh, magazine publishers have some similar sort of wariness uh, uh, because, again, it tends to be, it tends not to be their problem. Frankly, most of the, you know, all the broadsheet papers, uh, they don't tend to, they almost never get problems around sort of privacy, uh, occasionally, of course, around libel, but that's never been, that's not traditionally a PCC matter. So everyone's got different interests, everyone's got a different perspective, and, and, and also added to the mix, some of the players just fundamentally don't like each other and don't trust each other. Um, uh, You know, yeah, in its way, it sort of worked. But I think, again, again, it's an underlying backdrop of media power is on the wane generally. Uh, Media economics to chat constantly challenged. The internet is sort of, uh, you know... uh, you know, unregulated and powerful. No one's talking about this structure for the New York Times, never mind, you know, the uh, TMZ or or what Guido have Fawkes. you, or even Guido Fawkes. So, you know, we just have a sort of a scrappy, chaotic system against a backdrop where both where the public and indeed the more uh, honest parts of the industry know that reform is needed and better standards are needed because mistakes have been made in the past. You know, Stig said we could go back to square one, except we really badly need to change. And we're in a really confused environment where the way forward is not, you know, is not certain. The difficulty is when this level of, of scrutiny and pressure is placed upon what was always a rickety system, And the notion of regulating the free press is an oxymoron at its very heart. It's very, very difficult to do in any sensible way. And the PCC began as a a compromise, began as almost the lowest common denominator. When you start trying to build structures on it by introducing exemplary damages for those that don't apply, a royal charter with the statute underpinning it, you try and building a structure on incredibly shifting sand. And since the arrival of, of the internet, where pretty much the historical sweep is towards a greater circulation of information, greater sharing, you know, the rise of social media, Facebook and Twitter. Historically, we're moving into a realm of more sharing, less control, and people talking to each other more easily. And yet, we're trying to construct a structure for correct reasons. I mean, no one is disputing the need for uh, an improved system and improved standards, because what we saw with Leveson was constant examples of, of poor standards. But this notion, and it was so galling, I think, from for, for, to, for me personally to watch a load of self-satisfied politicians uh, cook up a deal in the middle of the night and then pour honey over each other for doing so as if they'd cracked it. And what we're seeing now is this is very, very, very hard to crack. And in a pursuit of something, we may end up just squabbling and squabbling and get nothing. Everyone here, I think, is operating at the limit, as limits of their sort of constitutional powers, if you will. You know, it isn't for politicians to regulate the fourth estate in any, you know, in any meaningful way, except, you know, the lightest touch, long term way, if you like. The idea that three party leaders could cook up a deal, and it is how law, I mean, what you've seen is how laws are made where you've got a hung parliament and you've got a bit of a, you know, and you've got a dispute between... You know, you've got a dispute between the three sides and eventually you sort of create a template in which everyone declares victory and grubby that it looks. But the problem you've got is that the politicians are right at their limit of their constitutional power, 
and they can't impose, you know, or they can't impose much of a solution on the press because to do so would be a, an infringement on free speech. And I mean, you know, and essentially sort of an affront to sort of British principle, never mind convention of human rights. And so we're in an incredibly problematic situation because, on the other hand, the press don't have the power amongst themselves, the ability to agree. You know, if they could argue forever, they would. You know, and they don't have the power to agree a sort of... Certainly don't have the power to agree to the creation of some royal charter body to, to sort of give it an extra, you know, layer of... a uh, bit of beef, if you like, to sort of toughen up the system. So we're, everyone's operating in a very sort of, you know, difficult area constitutionally against a contested backdrop where everyone has very different interests uh, and where everyone's feeling sort of mildly revulsed, I guess, at the fact that three-party leaders are telling us what to do. And also you talked about, sorry, talk about the media power on the wane, and one of the things you saw at Leveson was completely humbled, to use the Murdoch word, but sort of tabloid editors who in historical times would have sat in front of Leveson and told him to stick it. They'd have said, I don't accept your authority. But because of the guilty consciences that they had and the spectre of phone hacking uh, and uh, Operation Motorman hanging over a large section of the industry, they sort of crawled to Leveson like beaten dogs and crawled away again. And therefore, they never really made any intellectual arguments against the role of a judge appointed uh, by Parliament to look at this. Uh, they didn't make any arguments about freedom of expression because they couldn't. They were horribly compromised. And now we're in a situation where I, I, you'll, be, you'll have a better view on this than me, perhaps, Dan, but is there a sense that we've got to this position? Some of the sins that Leveson uh, realised and, and, and really did expose to the light are a little bit distant in people's minds. The notion of a lobby group like Hacktoff sitting in Ed Miliband's office does revulse a lot of people. And I wonder whether that might mean that some newspaper publishers are thinking, actually, we do feel emboldened to say we're not going to be part of this. And you see it with The Spectator and The New Statesman. People, the, the, two years ago, the notion of a newspaper group turning around and saying we're not going to accept this level of regulation would never have happened. Two years down the line, it seems at least possible that it could. Well, what are the sticks? What are the sticks that Cameron has or, or the new regulator has to persuade these um, newspaper groups that don't want to take part to take part? And, and what happens if they refuse? Where, where do we end up well, then? There's, there's, there's the, the stick, that the much hype stick of exemplary damages. You know, if you're not in the system, you're vulnerable to exemplary damages under uh, under the court in, in libel or uh, I don't know privacy or what have you. I mean, I'd like to see that tested, but anyway, I guess if Parliament yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess if Parliament passes a law and they had they had to in that respect, uh, then that must count for something. And there's also the suggestion but, that the Royal Charter you could see several well, different regulatory bodies set up under the Royal well, just Charter. On ex- just yeah. quickly on exemplary damages, damages. The, the the problem is there are some publishers and some newspapers get in trouble a lot, and some sell close to the wind, and it's what they do. They're provocative. They take the risk and they take the hit on their profits. It's their business model. And other publishers, ju- other publishers and newspapers just don't. The, the Financial Times, the Independent, the Dear Old Guardian, uh, uh, you know, the Times. These newspapers just don't take these kind of risks, and they don't get in trouble on privacy and occasionally they get in trouble on li- you know on on libel and so in a way if you're the ft any of these big guys could say well what's in it for us actually i mean only really what's in it for them is some sort of nobility in keeping the system together I that was when i was at the, the pcc that was a notion for 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 them i have conversations with editors all the time what why why are we in this we we feel that we've got standards i mean and that's the problem which you try and open up to start defining what constitutes a publisher what about reuters reuters are a effectively a newspaper in the sense they publish a website read in the uk established in, in the uk they're not going to be a part of this are they going to be subject to exemplary 
damages. Uh, a blog's going to be subject to, to exemplary damages. When you try and start defining, this is why I talk about, this was possible maybe 20 years ago when you could define what a newspaper was very readily. As that starts to, to fragment, to try and construct what you mean, because you kind of know what you mean 80% of the times, but 20% of the time is actually very difficult. Do we mean the Huffington Post? Do we mean Guido? Do we mean Reuters? Um, uh, and so that exemplary damages, which I think is very, very challengeable in terms of uh, European law, which raises the, the, the spectre of the Daily Mail uh, taking the government to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, an institution that it has reviled uh, since it uh, came along. But that, I think, would automatically happen if we got that far down the road. Well, just two questions left, one for each of you. First for you, Dan. How did we end up here? We had all the phone hacking revelations, we had the hours and hours of the Leveson hearings, uh, hundreds of pages of Leveson report. Is it the politicians? Is it, is, it, uh, is it Putnam for kind of speeding this along by inserting that clause into the defamation bill and sort of forcing Cameron's hand? Or is it the newspaper editors for, for, for not sort of getting their act together when they had the chance? Or is everyone at fault? I think it's sort of 20 years of, of, of inaction. And I think what, what happened was you had, the, you had this sort of grand bargain of no, you know, basically of top politicians, both parties sort of post, I think from Tony Blair on, getting very close to sort of tabloid editors in certain sections of the press. There were very intimate relationships. There was no toughening of the, tightening of the regulatory screw. That, that was one part of the backdrop. And the other part was, uh, in some parts of Fleet Street, a deterioration in standards that, and, and the, kind of, the, the kind of situation that allowed to, two sets of things to occur, phone hacking and things like sort of the McCann, the McCann story, that, that sort of willful, that, um, uh, I better be careful what I say, but that sort of long-running, not, not often inaccurate reporting that results in large, you know, large libel payouts at the end. So you have these two things going on. And eventually that just came together in that sort of phone hacking moment. And by this time, you know, the Murdochs are so close to the sort of, the Murdochs and News International are so close to the centre of the British elite. They're at the heart of the political establishment. They've become political actors and they become judged that way. So when all the phone hacking blows up, widespread public revulsion in the wake of Millie Dalla, something must be done. I mean, look at the drama of that time. It is no surprise that the government, you know, sets up, starts a public inquiry. And once you start a public inquiry, you're on the road. Public inquiries don't conclude by saying, you know what, everything's all right. They conclude by saying there's got to be some kind of action and it would have been the moment you started the public inquiry was the moment you had to have you were going to have some kind of legislation or you know uh, or, or the judge would have ducked it and so that you you know i think from the millie dowler moment this this has this has become inevitable uh you know two and a half years later and stig an easy one for you to finish with what happens next there's gonna be an awful lot of shouting for a while um i think if you can be optimistic in the end if you try to take away a lot of the political shouting. About 85% of the proposals for an improved version of the PCC would be agreed by a very, very high percentage of people. But to get to that point where that can happen, uh, the political temperature has got to cool. And it may be that once the attention gets away from this, uh, not in a cooking things up in a back room, but just in the fact that if you look at the pure and basic principles at stake, that most players want an improved version of the PCC that they can sign up to. You can say that that would happen. The alternative is that we just end up in this mess and it goes on and on, and we end up with the spectre of Parliament trying to consider to have more full statutory regulation or no regulation at all. That, to me, is now on the table again. It was off the table for a very long time, and that is the spectre that I think is facing everybody. OK. Dan Saber, Stig Abel, thank you very much. 
It's time now to return to Adweek, the most important event in the ad industry calendar. The creative force behind those famous Wonder Bar adverts, Trevor Beatty, has been raising eyebrows again. He predicted the end of the 30-second TV spot. So is it goodbye to the half-minute message, and what will replace it? I caught up with Trevor to find out. Trevor, I'm very well, and all the better for hearing you declare the end of the uh, traditional 30-second TV advert. I think so. It's time, isn't it? So if not 30 seconds, how long? Five. Five. Or, or big. So tiny or big. But the 30-second unit, as a unit of consumption, is tired and old-fashioned. Forty years ago, when, when we were told that we were going to receive a message in 30 seconds, it was like a, a laughably small amount of time to deliver a message. And now, it's a laughably laborious amount of time. People Five. are getting bored in that, over that 30-second period, you think? I think the ads themselves are a bit boring. When, when there's actually um, end sequences, the logo sequence can now last five seconds. Um, and with things like Vine, although Vine is cheating because Vine is six seconds, and I believe it's slightly shorter than that, <laughs> uh, you can look on Vine and decide within two seconds whether you like that piece of film. And that tells me something. If I can look at that and say, well, don't like this one, do like that one, after two seconds, then five is a nice pace for the current pace at which we absorb information, which is rapid. And that's a reflection of how viewers' attitudes have changed and how people's attitudes have changed, presumably a result of the, the d digital era for the one to the yeah, better Yeah, I think it's like a, a tapas existence. I keep hearing this everywhere. Everything's tapas, whether it's food or news or interviews like this. It's this constant... I hear on the radio... Am I going quick enough? I, well, I constantly hear on the radio, I've got to hurry you up, I've got to hurry you, you know, because we've got to go to the weather or there's a dog down a well somewhere. And they're always cut away from big issues to other issues and, and it becomes very bite-sized. But if you make the bite-sizes very interesting, the same amount of information can still go in. It just doesn't drag its feet. I think we're much quicker at taking it there. And you've identified this trend, but does it also make you feel a bit sad? Do you sort of long for the days where you know you could wait a week for the next episode of your favourite TV show, for instance? We are very impatient and uh, I've, I've become accustomed to it. In the, I've noticed, particularly in the news media, where you're not allowed to make a speech anymore, you have to pre-release the speech so that the news can be written about the speech before you make it. And it, there is an element of uh, kids being allowed to open their Christmas presents two days before Christmas about it. And it is that kind of impatience. We have an impatience. But I've decided to embrace it rather than whinge about it. And you're famous for adverts. Well, many, many adverts over the years, of course. But two string to mind are the FC UK for French Connection and uh, the, the Wonder Bar ads, of course, going back going back a few years, how, without the aid of visual uh, assistance, which is obviously going to make it mu so much easier for you, but how would you have done those ads in, in five seconds? They are five-second ideas, though. I think that FCUK was probably a two-second idea. Not that it took two seconds to have the idea, maybe it did, but two, <laughs> two seconds to communicate the idea. So they are very, uh, as they were billboard-based, it only takes five seconds to register an idea on a billboard. You don't stand there for 30 seconds looking at a billboard deciding whether you like it or not. There, isn't, there never was time. And that was so 200 years ago, looking at the billboard. And so I guess I'm bringing a, a sense of that billboard mentality to um, moving pictures. And you said ads should either go very short or very long. And it seems like the very long ads are the ones that people have been talking about in recent years, like the John Lewis Christmas ads. Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm not saying that we should have a, a commercial break full of five-second commercials, by the way, because I think that's wrong as well. But I think there's a, there's a, a nice blend to have there, two-minute commercials, three-minute commercials, but the bulk of them then around it being five-second messages. You could, you could take a two-minute commercial, three-minute commercial, and divide it into a five-second series. So little bites of a five-second tale which is being told. You could have an endless tale told with people adding their five seconds along the story. But, you know, the old game of writing a line and folding the paper over and writing the next line on a story. You can do that um, with, with movie. Uh, and one 
challenge was posed to you by someone up to me on Twitter was uh, if, you, if you're skipping the ads like so many people do on the EPG, how do you spot the five second ad? Because if you're going at 30 times normal rate, well, blink and you really do I, this. I, I disagree that we are skipping the ads now. I think that that's, dare I say, and even an old fashioned notion now. Because the idea that TiVo or um, Sky Plus would be the death of the TV commercial has been proved wrong. The reason it's wrong is because we're enjoying more and more live television. So live reality TV and live shows are where it's at now. And because of dual screen, we're, we're watching live TV, we're reacting with our friends and followers online to what we're seeing live, then we're reacting when the ad breaks come up to the ads, often complaining about the ads because they're boring and it's that old ad again. And I think with five seconds it stands a lot more repetition than a boring 30 that keeps coming on every break. So live television has been the salvation, I think, of... Um, of TV advertising, which was threatened by, by TV and by the, by the fast-forwarding. I think we tend to fast-forward less than we did. But the challenge is there, and the challenge is to get such a striking image within that five seconds that when you do fast-forward it, you, you will stop and think, hang on, was that what I just saw in five seconds? I need to come back and have a look at that. And I think that combination of the lengthy, almost cinematic piece of film commercial and the little bites of information and uh, the little bite, I, I showed a piece of film of... Uh, that I'd, I'd seen from Vine that, that someone had made of five, a five-second recipe for steak tartare, and it genuinely tells a story in five seconds. That could be a show. Never mind the ad. I'm also talking about the dreaded word content. That could be a TV show, which has the joy of not having Jamie Oliver in it as well. So that's a major bonus. Just the food. A five-second TV, but it has to be massive budget to make it pay, or you'd have to get a, a series of maybe ten thousand. Look, I mean, how many recipes could you do? There'd be loads <laughs> of them. And uh, outside of your, of your own work, which, uh, which ads are kind of grabbing your eye? Which ones do you most admire right now? Ad of the last 12 months was by a million miles um, meet the superhumans um, for Paralympics for Channel 4. Uh, and I'll flatter you a lot by saying uh, the Three Pigs commercial for Guardian was a genuine breakthrough because it, it spoke about the world as it is now and it, and it, it reinvented a uh, um, news platform and that was terrific. Trevor Beatty there. Also this week at the Ad Week conference, feathers were ruffled on Tuesday when Esquire's editor Alex Bilnes claimed that women on their covers were ornamental. This is what he said. When I've been asked to talk about this before, I never sugarcoat it because what we do at Esquire is produce a men's magazine and it has a male gaze and it's aimed at men specifically. And so this is the controversial bit that people don't like, but, uh, but I always say the truth about it. The women that we feature in the magazine are ornamental. That, that is how we see them. Can hear the them. audience. Um, and, and, and we feel... Sorry? We have sharp objects. Yeah, I know. Well, I could, lie, I could lie to you if you want and say that we're interested in their, in, in their brains as well, but on the whole, we're not. Um, and they're, and they're, they're there to be a beautiful um, objects. They're objectified. Having said this, the women's media does exactly the same thing. I think we're actually less um, rigid in our idea of what a woman ought to look like. Oh so, God, that is so we, we, we reflect, we reflect uh, we, I think that we're I I at least or possibly more eth ethnically diverse. We also put older, we have older women in. I mean, not really old, not really old, but in their, for in their 40s, in their 40s, <laughs> in their 40s. Not really old. We do, we do, we, we often do. Cameron Diaz, Rachel Weiss is on our cover, she's 43. Cameron Diaz was on the cover about three issues ago. She's in her 40s. Most women's magazines don't put them on the cover. Well, after the event, I caught up with Louise Court, Cosmopolitan's editor-in-chief, and asked her for her thoughts on why feminism is still a taboo subject for so many people. 
Today we weren't just talking about magazines, we were talking about the whole of media. So we were talking about newspapers, we were talking about advertising. And I think one of the challenges is getting women in those senior positions. And your session was called, um, uh, are you, do you use the F word? I'd have thought in 2013 yes. we should have got over that and everyone you know, should call themselves a feminist now. But do you still detect through your, through your readership of Cosmopolitan that people are, are still wary of it? I mean, what puts them off? Why wouldn't you be a feminist? I mean, we should have got over it, absolutely. But I think what's... Um, you know, Cosmopolitan had a big We Use the F Word campaign last year to time with our 40th birthday. And uh, we did a big survey amongst young women and you say to them, do you think you're equal to a man? Yes. Should you have the same opportunities as a man? Yes. Would you say you're a feminist? And the, People get a bit sticky about that. A lot of women don't like the word, and they feel it feels combative of women against women, and you and sort of you have to have your sort of feminist stripes. I'm more feminist than you are. Whereas the basic premise is, do you as a man believe in women having the same rights as women? Yes. So therefore, you're a feminist, and I believe the same thing, and I'm a feminist. But it has become a taboo word. So it's really important to to reclaim it. And, and one of the points that was raised um, at the discussion that we had earlier is because a lot of the senior positions are held by men, progression of women isn't going to be a number one topic on their minds. So it's really important to, to remind people that actually, yeah, we've won some battles, but there's a lot more battles to be won. And aside from issues of childcare and bringing out families and, 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 and the problems that poses, do you come across sort of, sort of blatant sexism in the, in the industry? Not now. I mean, I, when I first started out, I did. There was... Um, a time when I was working for a newspaper and it was back in the 80s and tight rubber dresses had first come in and they said, oh Louise, we'd like you to go out in this tight rubber dress to gauge what the response of people is, you know, is to it because it was quite shocking then. And they said, and um, David will come with you and write the piece up. And I just thought, oh, I don't think so. But I didn't have the courage to say, no, I don't think so. So I pretended I had a rubber rash and uh, they had to get someone else to do it. Which newspaper was that? Or would I'm you rather not, not say? tell you. Right, okay. I'll have to get Google out later. Um, <laughs> okay, Louise Court, thank you very much. Thank you. No TV this week, whilst we begin our search for a new regular host. Yes, that's right, Vicky Frost is off to Oz. But in the meantime, I caught up with veteran TV comedy producer John Lloyd to find out what he's been watching. We're a box set family. My wife and I sit in bed watching uh, yeah, Breaking Bad, obviously best bit of television probably for 30 years I think before that was the wire mad men that's really what we like and actually we do a lot of catch-up my wife's really into Danish drama you know Scandi is there a word for Scandi drama there should be shouldn't there Scandi drama yeah <laughs> well tell me about Breaking Bad what is it uh, I'm just about to start series four so I'm playing catch-up too but what is it about it do you think that makes it so good it's uncompromisingly dangerous and honest and and a very QI thing they're not scared of talking proper chemistry I mean I think that's the really really big leap forward is that's so QI you know that's what we believe everything is interesting if looked at in the right way and the way they wind that into the story and it's also compassionate and funny and that's the wonderful thing the difference between The Wire which before was my favorite television series ever I think but The Wire is not funny at all, has absolutely no sense of humour, barely any. And Breaking Bad has broken that, broken through that boundary as well. So, I mean, really, if I was 19 now, that would make me want to work in television more than anything else. And I think it's something we have lost a bit in British television. 
I don't know what it is. It's trying to guess what people want, I think. And you would never guess a washed-up chemistry teacher who gets lung cancer would it wouldn't get to first base past a television commissioner in Britain, would it? Not a chance. Yeah, well, you, you chaired a session here at the Adweek Europe, and, and uh, you were quite critical of uh, the TV commissioning process today, and you said, um, I think the phrase you used was that the colour had drained out of television in, in for the sake of efficiency. Yeah, and I think that's true of... Um, of advertising as well it's not just telly because it's like we've all said you know the accountants have taken over the world they're not even accountants they're people who went to management school you know everything is box ticking everything's focus groups it doesn't work in any creative enterprise and what's interesting talking about ad week is that the newspapers have had to change or die and I think is I think the standard is the best it's been in in decades actually I read it every night I think this is really well done. It's really exciting, it's vibrant, it's positive, it's uplifting, it's interesting, it's full of information. And I think that's because, you know, they were going to go under. And I think television will have to do that because there aren't going to be any television and advertising is very similar. And you said the four second skip button on YouTube had changed the way that advertising uh, executives make adverts. Well, it's odd for a, a BBC man to say this, but I obviously, I spent, you know, 15 years working for the other side and I'm a firm believer in the market, you know, that people will not put up with stuff that's not good enough, you know. So if what was happening with uh, YouTube was that they were making ads like they used to make for telly in the 90s, you know, it's, you know, it's beautiful and, you know, so, but it takes a time to wind up. You can't do that anymore. If they go and want to watch Metallica on YouTube or whatever it is they like, you know, clips of the two Ronnies or whatever they're looking for, they do not want an ad in front of it. That model is wrong, they've got that wrong, but so what they've had to do is have this skip button on and the result of it is that the creative guys in the agencies are now trying to get your attention in four seconds and it works. It actually, Google can tell you it works, the stats show that it does, that more and more people are not skipping the ad because in that first three seconds you go, hey, this is good, that's funny or that's an interesting ad, what's that? Which is what, of course, advertising used to do 20 odd years ago. It's like didn't waste a frame, you know? And now it's got, well, hey, we should have more pack shot, you know, we should have more mention, no, the product should be near up the front, you know? I mean, I got booted off this crunchy nut job I mentioned in the thing with Rob Bryden because the, the client in Chicago uh, decided that jokes were not what people wanted. They had, there was too many jokes and too much, but they wanted more shots of the cornflakes. So they took out the best joke in the ad, which just, completely ruined it I have to say it was a disaster but according to the box ticking well you know uh, what we should have is at least you know at least three quarters of a cornflake ad should be pictures of cornflakes you know that doesn't work I know you know my kids know it doesn't work but somebody who went to marketing school thinks that showing a pint of lager glistening in the sunlight is going to make people go and buy it it doesn't work so the crunchy nut ads we saw weren't the director's cut oh no oh no very much not it did appear slightly joke-free. <laughs> well, I'm afraid, yeah, that's the thing. It's, yeah, should we take that one out as well? No, please don't take that one out as well. No, I think we should take that one out as well. So, well, not an account you'll be returning to. J John, just finally, it's been 10 years or so since QI was first on BBC Two. It's become an, an industry by itself. Where, where do you take it next? Well, as I think I was saying earlier, John, you were, I think, almost maybe the very first person to spot it was coming on. There might have been the gossip column in the Express, I can't remember. Stick with the first person. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think you probably were the first person. So I very well remember meeting you about that. And, it, you know, of course, we didn't know what was going to happen. I, 
I've never made a television program. I haven't been 100% confident. I, and we'd done the pilots. I knew it was, I knew it had something in the offing. And it's done fine. You know, we're still here. It's the 11th series just coming up. We, after seven years, they managed to give us a sister radio series, the Museum of Curiosity. But it did take seven years to persuade anyone on radio that a thing would work if it didn't have Stephen Fry in it, you know? And that's now in its sixth season. Um, we've uh, just had a, our latest books done amazingly well. well. 1227 QI Facts to Blow Your Socks. I've just been bought by the Americans, which is incredibly exciting. But it's still, it's not what I intended. I thought by now it was going to change the way people were educated and, you know, just we'd have a string of schools and we'd have 20,000, you know, paid up um, QI fanatics, researchers all over the world. There was this brilliant idea that the research system was, I was the only person who understood how to do QI research because I invented the idea. And I was going to train five people to do it. And when I trained them, and they absolutely understood that each of those five people can train five more, like a sort of communist cell system, you know. And eventually, we'd have 100,000 people in the world who knew how to do it. Because the whole idea is, the mantra of QI is, um, man is born curious, but everywhere he's bored stiff. You know, for man, I mean human beings, you know. And QI is meant to make people think you cannot be bored while there are still trees in the world and while there are still other people to talk to and while there is sunsets and, you know, frogs and volcanoes. How can you possibly be bored? It's insane. Well, that's it for this week's Media Talk. My thanks to all our guests. You can leave your comments on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can always tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. I'm off to Oxford Street now to spend all my money on everything I've seen advertised to me in the last four days. You see, advertising really does work. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.